Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. the everlasting God, faithful through generations, faithful from the past, from the beginning, faithful through Genesis, faithful through the life of Noah, faithful past the life of Noah, to Abraham, to David, to Solomon, to all of the descendants of the faith, faithful to the New Testament, faithful in sending Jesus to earth, faithful to rescue us faithful to provide the means of salvation to those who need salvation. We needed God's intervention on our behalf. Why? Because we keep screwing up. We keep falling short. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the standards of God. And God in his rich mercy and in his great love for mankind sends the means of salvation in faithfulness to his covenant. His his deep desire is to be with his people together. This is an intense expression of love from God to us. And he is faithful to his covenants and he is faithful to his promises. And there is nothing else like it on earth. This incredible love, this incredible expression of God's covenant faithfulness. Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sustainer of heaven and earth, the one who made men's minds and men's hearts and men's bodies, the one who knows us utterly and completely, Lord, may we surrender to you. It happens once at the time of salvation, and then we have the Holy Spirit, and God, we still need to surrender to you every single day, every single hour of the day, each day of our lives. Why? Because distraction is imminent, because apathy is imminent, because all of these temptations, all of these sins are crouching at our door. And Lord, we need you, not them. We need you. So fill up in us your Holy Spirit. Fill up in our minds and our hearts and our bodies the things of God so that we would not chase the things of this world which are truly meaningless. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God faithfully led his people through the flood to the other side. We read about that the last four weeks. God was faithful in his covenant with Noah, in his covenant with Noah's three sons and all four of their wives. God was faithful in his covenant with the animals, we read last week, that God made a covenant with the animals. Never again will I flood the earth. Never again 
in a beautiful expression of God's intense love and his covenant faithfulness. And God loves the creatures that he made. Yes, God loves mankind in an utterly and completely different way than anything else that he has made, for we're made in his image and his likeness. But God loves the creatures. God loves the earth that he formed, that he spoke into existence. This planet, he loves it because God created it. And when we see that God loves the animals, when we see that God loves his creation, the trees, the plants, the waters, the planet, that too changes and should change how we see the creatures, your domesticated animals in your home, your domesticated animals on your street, the wild animals in the wild that we practically never see but that we marvel at a God, a creator who could make such fascinating animals like the platypus, like the anteater, like the great blue whale, like the tiny, tiny plankton in contrast. A God who made ferocious beasts and dinosaurs of all shapes and sizes. And God who makes the smallest, fastest, perseverant, bird like the hummingbird. This is the God we worship, and he cares intensely for that which he has made. And he cares that much more intensely and passionately and lovingly for mankind. And God put a rainbow in the sky as a confirmation of the covenant that he made with mankind and with the creatures that never again would he flood the earth. And this rainbow that we see is a continuous reminder to us that God says he remembers. When he sees it, when he puts the bow in the clouds, he remembers. Oh, that we would remember the powerful love of a God who never forgets his covenants, who always remembers his covenants because he wants to always and he will always, and he will affirm to us that he is always faithful to his covenants. When we stray, when the people of God stray, when those that we read in the Old Testament stray, when those we read in the New Testament stray, God is faithful. God is constant. God is loving and compassionate and merciful and gracious in abundance. God is faithful. If you have your Bibles, please open them today where we left off last week at Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. Now we go from the story of Noah to the lineage of Noah, the descendants of Noah. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Ah, like many before him, a man of the soil, a worker of the ground, Adam and Eve, Cain. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, which is sin. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. 
Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Chapter 10, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagamar. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rema, and Sabtek. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, and Kalnech, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kalal, and Rezin before Nineveh and Kalal. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anaim, Labaim, Raphtuhim, Pavrasim, Kalsuim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemanites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lysha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arkpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arkpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shalef, Hazarmapheth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Ebimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. 
The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. A lot of genealogies. And as we stated before, that the descendants of man, the genealogies of your family develop a heritage. Genealogies are important, not because you will remember every single one of these names, but because every single one of these names represents a man and represents a family and represents a generation either toward faithfulness in God, rather toward God in faithfulness or not that is apart from God, seeking something other than God. You'll recognize some of these names in here, and we'll get to this today. That you'll recognize, oh, some of these names of these cities, of these people, were not faithful to God. They were enemies of Israel. They were enemies of the people of God. They opposed God. And then there were some that were faithful to God. And we see this pattern, and we see this repetition back at the times of Cain and Abel, the second generation of man after Adam and Eve, and how there were those on the earth who were not of faith in God. And then there were those who were of the faith of God because they were of Adam and Eve. And so you have this divergence. You have these two paths, you have these two ways of mankind. And then before Noah, it was that all the thoughts of man were only evil continually. This was pervasive throughout the known world at this time. And God said, therefore, I'm going to blot out man from the earth except for Noah and his family. So let's get to verse 19. Verse 18, rather. <laughs> But in verse 18 and 19 at the start of today's text, from the families of these three men, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, Noah's three sons who were in the ark, they walk out of the ark. And what do they do? The whole earth would be inhabited and developed from the lineages of these three men, from the families of these three men and their wives. The lineage of how many? Of all the earth alive today, we can trace back to the line of Noah. And dependent upon which statistic you read online today, that's a little over 8 billion people. And it was about 6 billion when I was a child. Therefore, the earth continues to grow in number. And are the people seeking God, humbling themselves before God? Or are they going on the divergent path? But in this filling of the earth from these three men and their wives, this was obedient to God. God said back in chapter 9, verse 7, And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Team on the earth is a language that we think of with the animals. But this was an instruction to mankind. This was an instruction to Noah and his sons. Team on the earth, multiply. Be fruitful in all the earth. So this was obedient. And therefore, this was good. Now, what comes next in today's text? 
Noah became a winemaker in this new world. He was a worker of the ground, a man of the soil, as it says in verse 20. And again, this is what we read of Adam when he was, well, first of all, we know it was true of Adam at the beginning. And then Adam continued to work the soil after they were banished from the Garden of Eden. But it was by thorns and thistles under a curse from God that he had to work and work and work the ground. Noah follows in the footsteps of his great ancestor, and he becomes a man of the soil. And that's a good thing. And he planted a vineyard, and that's a good thing. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, and this is not a good thing. But much like can happen when someone is intoxicated, and that's why the Bible warns again and again and again, and names that as sin, it's clear from this text that Noah did something that was not done in his time and was not, therefore, appropriate in his time. He lay, as we can interpret, asleep, uncovered in his tent, or that is to say, in today's language, he was naked. It's not clear, specifically as I read this, that the drunkenness was intentional. It may have been, may not have been, but the fallout was. Now, drunkenness can still be sin, whether it's intentional or not. I think a lot of what we know in our culture regarding drunkenness is that it is, sin, that it is intentionally undertaken, but we can also sin by omission. Sin can be both or either commission or omission. And what is drunkenness exhibited is like intoxication, whether by drugs or alcohol, that you are, or certain medicines, that you are not in your right mind. That you're not in full control of your faculties or your thinking, that you can't think clearly and therefore act clearly. Therefore, drunkenness is prohibited by God, or we could say it is sinful. And that is both and the same, prohibited and sinful. Genesis 6-9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So just to draw a correlation that I think is important as we look at faithful men of the Old Testament, they were not without sin. There's only one human man who was out with without sin. I can say it. There was only one human man that did not have sin and never sinned, and that was the man, God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Because the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Noah still had sin, and our Lord, our God, is gracious to forgive. But what else do we see here? How did the first family member react when he saw his father Noah naked in his own tent, in Noah's tent? It was Ham. And Ham didn't cover up his father's nakedness by himself and walk away with integrity and discretion, as he should have done. Instead, he broadcast the sin to his brothers. He went outside the tent and told both of his brothers, Shem and Japheth. And how did those two respond? Those two responded how Ham should have responded. And they covered up their father's nakedness. And they did not look at him 
as they positionally approached him with a sheet to cover him. Because that was honorable. Because there is honor and there is appropriateness in a family. Because there is honor and appropriateness in a community. Because there is honor and appropriateness in a community of believers, or I will say the church. Because those who have God on the throne of their heart together, whether that is your family, and that's what we're looking at here, so I don't want to draw an exact correlation to also outside of the family, but within a family, there is a certain particular culture of honor and love and respect, or at least there should be. That is how it was designed. Now, depending upon how each person in your family either follows God or chooses to oppose God, that may or may not have a realization. But what we see here with Noah's family specifically is we see someone who walked with God. Noah walked with God. This was the culture. This was the respect. This was the commonality in this family. It was a commonality of respect and honor and legacy, and reputation. Not that they were looking for the reputation outside, but I'm saying that God testifies to the reputation of those who follow him when his people follow him. This is a testimony, if you will. Maybe that's a better word for it. And we see that Shem and Japheth understood that, and remembered that, and knew that, and actively acted upon it, and Ham did not. There was something amiss in his heart, and that, therefore, how he acted was also sinful. So you take Noah's sin, and his son Ham, his son Ham's sin. They both acted with sinfulness, but there was a certain shame brought upon Ham, because he had shamed Noah. And that's what we read about next. Verse 24. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, i.e. when he had clarity of his mind or he was sober again, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Who's Canaan? Canaan is Ham's son. He didn't say cursed be Ham. That's interesting. Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And Noah also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Let Canaan therefore be Shem's servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. He's linking them together here in the blessing. And let Canaan be Japheth's servant. So it was, folks, either that Noah remembered what was done because he had some cognitive knowledge of it that he wasn't fully asleep, or perhaps he was drunk, but he was still awake at the time, or it was told to him after he awoke. But Noah definitively determined what Ham had done was disgraceful, and conversely, that Shem and Japheth had acted honorably. Again, this testifies to what was appropriate at the time and what was absolutely inappropriate. And the fact that Noah was laying uncovered in his tent was inappropriate 
but also that a family member had seen him and not covered him was inappropriate. And this was deep. This was a deep disgrace, a deep shame. That's what led Noah to bring a curse, to speak a curse onto him. So he curses really the family line of Ham. He says Canaan, but it is Ham's son. Therefore, he's saying that there will be a blessing upon Shem and Japheth's line mentioning also that Canaan is to be the servant of the other two families, and the curse is with Canaan. And that's interesting. And we know, of course, later about the Canaanites who were in the land of Canaan, which is part of the land of Israel, or modern, or the people of Israel became the land of Israel. And these were people that Israel had to go to battle with because they were disobedient to God, that they were opposed to God, and therefore they were enemies of God, enemies of the people of Israel. So family line is important, either for godliness or for the divergent path, which is a disobedience. So let's see here in the family line. First, it mentions... Japheth in chapter 10, that he fathered sons who ventured out to fill the earth. And then it says here in verse 5, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. And it makes me wonder, was this part of God's plan to the filling of the earth to branch out into individual languages? Would there have been a loss of cohesion among God's people if they spoke different languages from whence they had spoke the same language? Not so much so that it would be different clans because those are different families. And throughout history, that can either be families or that can be large tribal groups or that can be even greater in the definition of that. But in nations, we also see a similar language there with clans and nations. The founding of a nation, again, not necessarily divisive, not necessarily different in a bad way. But the fact that it created new languages, I wonder if this was a derivation of the unity of God's people that God had in mind. I don't know. This is something that I don't know. I just think about as I'm reading this. They did go into all different parts of the known world at this time. And that's what we read throughout here in chapter 10 with the three sons of Noah and the descendants of Noah. And as they become new, quote unquote, nations, if you will, or fathers of nations or fathers of cities. But it is possible that these different languages created barriers. And it's possible that these different languages created separation, not necessarily in a good way. You think about all the different languages of the earth today. You think about the different people, groups, the Christian, uh, Christian missionaries and missionary organizations have been able to translate the Bible into these different languages because we're trying to bring together God's word to the nations. We're trying to bring together God's word to the tribes, 
to those in the deep rainforest, to those out into the desert, to those into the upper reaches of Mongolia and Siberia. These very difficult and remote parts of our world where not many people live because it's very difficult to live and there are different languages spoken there and we're trying to bring unity where there is division. Or rather, perhaps I should say where there was division before today in 2023. So how did these divisions start? Why did these divisions start? Jesus Christ is the great uniter. That's one of my expressions of love for Jesus because he does unite all people from all races and all ethnicities and all walks of life and all income levels and all statuses in him. Our God does not measure acceptance like the world measures acceptance. The world forces different standards at different times in different nations and different cultures and different cities and different parts of the world. And it says, you need to act like this for us to accept you. And God says, my level of acceptance for you is simply found in the fact that I love you. I created you. And I sent Jesus to die for you. So will you follow me? Will you believe in him? as your personal Lord and Savior. And that doesn't depend on your race or your ethnicity or your language or your income level or anything else. You could be the poorest person on earth and the invitation is open to you just like it is the wealthiest person on the earth. You could be someone without any family or any friends or anyone to talk to. You could be someone who struggles with sadness or depression or anxiety or any number of other issues. You could be someone of poor health. You could be someone who's in intensive care. You could be someone who struggles with their work. You could be someone who struggles for identity. You could be someone who struggles to get by. You could be someone who has everything in your bank account and in your garage, and in your home, in the eyes of the world that should mean success, but you still don't feel fulfilled. And you can be accepted by God regardless of any of those things or the lack of those things because God sees us by a completely different standard. And his standard is love. And his standard is compassion. And his standard is is shown in the great expression of his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, his son. Let's look at Ham. This is chapter 10, starting at verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So Ham fathered sons. And some of these founded cities or nations who became enemies of Israel. And I see that notably with the Egyptians. And we spoke before about the Canaanites. And some turned into cities of outright wickedness later, like Sodom and Gomorrah. And you probably recognized their names when we read that earlier down at verse 19. Some were faithful. To God. 
of all of these sons, of all of these sons of Noah who created cities and built cities and helped father cities. And of course, they had sons and their sons had sons. And this helped with the expansion because it takes a, a long amount of time to expand out into the earth, to have sons and then have families and fill the earth and have descendants and increase greatly on the earth. But God says, be fruitful. God says back in chapter 9, verse 7, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. So what does fruitfulness mean? That means being fruitful before God. Being fruitful in the sight of God. Being faithful to God. And we know that the Egyptians went wayward. And we know that the Canaanites went wayward. And we know that some of these other cities also went wayward. We see Sodom and Gomorrah later delve into out and outright wickedness, basically as pervasive as at the time of Noah, where every intention of the thoughts of men was only evil continually because they chose the divergent path. In the line of Ham, we see something Specific, we actually see the most description of any individual here in chapter 10, besides a reading of the genealogies. We see the life of Nimrod. And that's a curious name to us today because that, had, that was a common phrase in the 80s and 90s, uh, an expression of someone who uh, perhaps was not on the level. That doesn't necessarily correlate to anything in the life of Nimrod, this man here. Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Different commentaries will describe this as perhaps a giant, but definitely someone of, just like we would say today, a mighty man, someone of great strength or great renown. He was popular. He was strong. He was tall. And what they nicknamed a giant just meant a very tall person, perhaps six inches taller than other people, perhaps nine inches taller than other people. Someone that you would inevitably, physically, literally at the least, look up to. And he did command quite a bit of authority. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, it was said, it has been said historically of him, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Is being a mighty man good or bad? Neither. It's indifferent. Mighty man can be good. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. A mighty hunter before the Lord. See, I see the expression here of the Lord's mention in the same sentence. This is a good thing. It doesn't say he was a mighty hunter who just lived or away. He was a mighty hunter apart from the Lord. It says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Unless there's some meaning that we don't see here. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. There it is again. Repetition. Now we read the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, and Kanach in the land of Shinar which was a plain, everyone will recognize Babel here. 
and we'll get to that next week in chapter 11. Babel was not a good thing. Babel was opposition to God. But Nimrod's life was important enough to mention with a description here in Ham's line. So what did he do? What did Nimrod do with the strength and the talents given him by God? And again, I'm going to get into this more next week, but I can tell you this. It's a story similar to that of Samson in the book of Judges. And depending upon how much you remember of the story of Samson, yes, he was a mighty man, you could say, of Samson. He was extremely strong, and God did miraculous works through him, and he was one of the judges of Israel in an age of unfaithfulness. And that's really what a lot of Judges, the book of Judges in the Old Testament is about, is unfaithfulness to our God from the people. And that's why he sent the judges to proclaim judgments against the people, to, pr- to largely proclaim repentance to the people and call the people to repent back to the Lord. The people would forsake God and God would send them into captivity or give them over to their enemies. And the people would cry out to the Lord and cry out to the Lord and God had compassion on his people because he had covenant with his people. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people, but you must obey me in the covenant. You must obey my commandments. And if you don't obey my commandments, there's going to be repercussion for your disobedience. And therefore you will be handed into the lives of your enemies and to the nation of your enemies. And this is what would happen over and over again. And God would send a judge and the judge would proclaim repentance. And the judge would sometimes with a strong arm lead victory to God's people. And that was true in the life of Samson. But Samson fell short. Samson fell short over and over and over again. So it's important that when you are given gifts from God, when you are given these great gifts from God, or perhaps you're given a very small gift from God, it's really important to stop, recognize who gave you the gift, and say, what am I going to do with this gift? Because God wants you to honor God with this gift. And holiness in righteousness, in purity, and in glory to God. Now let's look at the life of Shem. Shem also fathered sons who ventured out to fill the earth. One of his grandsons, Peleg, was named to describe the state of the world at that time. In his days, the earth was divided. Let's look at this. Verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in the days, in his days, the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Chaktan. So basically, as a summary statement of what we've read so far today, we can see that these men, these families from these three sons of Noah are branching out into all of the known world at this time, or I should say the quote-unquote known world. After the flood, there was no one alive on earth, so they were branching out further and further from the mountains of Ararat where the ark was, uh, where it landed, where it set. 
And in his days, the earth was divided. The earth was definitely divided, and the earth would become more and more so divided as they are of different languages and different nations and different clans, as we read at the start of chapter 10, as they create different languages. See, a language, a new language, has to be created. We're doing the opposite right now on the earth, and I talked about Bible translation. We're trying to bring together the different languages of the earth so that we can translate the word of God and we can, Matthew 28, bring the great commission of Jesus Christ to the nations. And it's not so much the nations because certain nations speak the same language, but certain languages are within one small part or city or tribe in all the earth. And it's a very unique language. We're doing the opposite now. Back then, they were expanding and they were creating new languages when they did not need them. Why, I'm not sure. But it creates a division that now we're trying to do the opposite as the body of Christ. And we're trying to bring the languages together in God's word. Because Jesus Christ is the great uniter. Because God cares for all the people on the earth. Because life is precious. And because he wants all people to repent and to trust in him and to be part of the family of God and to be grafted into the vine of the covenants of God. That God would be with his people and his people would be with him. But in his days, the earth was divided, it said, of Peleg. That he was named, people had names that meant phrases, that meant in his days, the earth was divided. And the earth was becoming more and more divided. And this would be more and more of a problem. What do we know from Shem's line? We also know that from Shem's line, that Abram, become Abraham, would be born approximately, you check my math, but approximately 290 years after the flood, Abram was born. Become Abraham, become the father of many nations. And in God's renewed filling of the earth, we see that some descendants pursued, what did they pursue? They pursued God and humility before God. See, pursuing God requires humility. You can't pursue God. You can't have a relationship with God if you don't humble yourself before him. And that's what it takes to become a Christian. God's love. God has done all the work for us in Jesus Christ. And we must receive him in faith, confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in our heart and surrender ourselves to him. That we're not still striving in our own identity to establish our own identity apart from God, but we're surrendering our rights to ourselves and saying, God, I will give everything to you and I will go and I will follow you. As Jesus called all of us, follow me, he said, follow me. So we see some descendants pursue faithfulness to God. And we see others who harden their hearts against God, pursuing their own ambitions for their own definition of happiness in their own way. 
when you look around your life right now, when you look around your city, when you look around the earth today, do you see that we are in a similar environment? That the church is growing and growing and growing and growing in certain areas. And curiously enough, it's growing in nations of the earth where the church is radically persecuted. And in some areas where the church is so, in nations where Christians are not under persecution and where life is, quote unquote, perhaps comfortable or more comfortable, it's not growing as much. We also saw in the last three years that God is dividing more the wheat from the chaff. And what I mean by that is within the context of his church, that he is closing the doors of some of his churches because God is in charge of his church and God will open the doors and God will bring growth and the Holy Spirit will move and there will be growth and active passion for God. And where there is a lack of surrender to God, a lack of integrity before him, and the preaching of his word and faithfulness, God will close the doors of his church. Or the, church, the, the churches that proclaimed him or said that they proclaimed him, but were not faithful. Because God is living and active and his church is living and active on this earth and it is growing and it is growing with an intensity, and that's a great thing. But guess what is also growing is disobedience. Six billion people, when I was a child on the earth, over eight billion people today, that's over a 25% growth in total population of the earth as best as the statistics online can determine it. And who are we pursuing? Who are we pursuing? God is calling us to himself. It's an, it is important how a man and woman teach and lead themselves and the next generation because faith begets faith and wickedness begets wickedness in family lines. It's not exclusively true, but it's largely true. Look at this text. Look at your family line and let us set an example that glorifies God. Holy God, we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ that we might be a people who believe, a people of faithfulness, a people who are in your word and faithful to you, God, that though we sin, that we want to walk with you, God, and glorify you, God, and teach our children to walk with you, God, and glorify you, God. Pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis 11.